This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, once upon a time, there was a film critic named Sarah Welch-Larson who found herself in a movie theater and very, very afraid. So you're leaning into the dark fairy tale side of things, I guess, with this week's episode. I mean, we did kind of do that with both of our picks for this week's episode. So for the watch list, we are going to be discussing a dark fairy tale in stop motion form. That's Henry Selleck's 2009 film, Coraline. And for our new release, we're going to be talking about a dark fairy tale about a guy who just really has some big problems with his mom. We're still a month off from Mother's Day, so I think we can get away with that. We are, of course, talking about Ari Aster's film, Bo is Afraid. Fairy Tales and Fear, coming up on episode 378 of Seeing and Believing. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Hi, Carrot, it's Mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel and I love you. Okay. I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Yes, we're here on episode 378 of Seeing and Believing, a.k.a. the Bad Families <laughs> uh, edition of the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know that... I mean... I guess we do try to kind of keep things thematic around here, but I don't know that I was quite prepared for how intensely these two films hit that theme this week. They definitely rhyme. I'm really excited to get into the galaxy brain connections between the two of these when we get there. Well, we're, we're going to definitely make time for that later on in the episode. We are going to be talking about Henry Selleck's animated film Coraline, uh, which ties in pretty neatly thematically with the new release that we're talking about here, Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid, a very appropriate title. Unlike Aster's previous two films, Hereditary and Midsummer, Bo is Afraid isn't a straight-up entry in the horror genre, but plenty of the events that occur over the course of the film could properly be classified as horrifying. Mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix plays this title character, Bo, a middle-aged man who seems to perpetually exist on the edge of a panic attack. The cause of his anxiety is his mother. The reason his mother causes him anxiety will gradually become clear over the course of the film's three-hour running time when Bo receives some very bad news and must embark on a harrowing odyssey to visit the woman who brought him into this surreal existence. So, like I already mentioned, not a horror film, but... He Aster still brings some horror movie energy to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the official marketing for Bo is Afraid uses adjectives like demented to describe it, which, again, seems fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's bringing a similar sensibility to a film 
that is working in a slightly different mode than his previous two films. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that distinction makes sense to you, Sarah, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how well you actually think that works in this film. Yeah, it's interesting. So Astor's previous two movies, I would almost call stately. They're definitely more measured. This one feels manic to the point where I felt like I was on the verge of a panic attack myself throughout quite a lot of the runtime, especially I think the first 45 minutes to an hour or so. And that manic energy also kind of manifested itself almost as... um, I don't know, I think you should leave energy, like the Tim Mm. Robinson sketch show on Netflix. Every single encounter that Bo has with another human being is rendered surreal and horrifying. I think there are tinges of horror. I don't have any qualms about referring to this as a horror movie because I think of genres being kind of mutable and you can have multiple genres for the same movie. This one feels like some sort of a messed up fairy tale with a lot of Greek epic influences on it. Like I see a lot of the Odyssey in this movie. I see a lot of Freud in this movie. And I see a lot of very uncomfortable sketch comedy in this movie, which kind of, if you stick all of that into a blender, that's kind of my own personal horror genre in a I'm not having fun with this kind of mode. So in terms of technical skill, and we can get into this, I think Ari Aster is still quite good. I tend to admire him more than I like his filmmaking. I did not have a good time with Hereditary. I had a slightly better time with Midsommar, but it's also not a movie that I think about all that much at this point. Bo is Afraid is a movie that I was kind of relieved to have over and not in the cathartic sort of way, just in a, I am glad that I am done being bludgeoned by this movie. So I'm curious to know if you had a better experience with it. I I mean, I definitely share your reaction to the, the end of the film where I, I was kind of, I was kind of glad it was over. Um, and I, I was going to say that you know, it's a three-hour film, and man, it feels so long. I don't know that thinking back on what it was like to actually watch this film, that's necessarily true. I don't think that it drags. Mm-hmm. I think Aster is a talented enough filmmaker to keep the pacing up and uh, the different scenarios that Bo finds himself in throughout the film are inventive enough that it's never... there's never a dull moment, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I think that the whole ends up feeling less than the sum of its parts. I I found myself thinking a lot of the films of Charlie Kaufman, both the stuff that he's written and the stuff he's written and directed, Mm -hmm. and how those films do a lot of the same things that Bo is Afraid does Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, surreal situations, uh, often social situations where... Uh, the main character is sort of confronted with a a situation or a person who is just reacting to him in a slightly off-kilter way that is completely out of his control and yet is kind of dominating him. And it's usually a him mm-hmm. in Kaufman's case. Um, and that all kind of feeds into this energy in Kaufman's films of just, uh, just free-floating depression and anxiety and self-loathing and desire for things 
that he can't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like Bo's Afraid is working in a similar mode in terms of the source, the, the anxieties that kind of pile onto Bo. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the main thing that this film is about is anxiety surrounding his mother, uh, sex and death. Uh, you know, very Oedipal, mm-hmm. <laughs> very Greek. Um, I think the difference, though, and what I think makes this a much less successful than a film like, say, Synecdoche, New York, or Anomalisa, or I, uh, I'm i thinking of ending things, mm-hmm. um, is that I don't feel like this film ever really progresses or evolves in, in fruitful ways. It kind of... St- stays stuck for me at least in the second gear where it's it's just constantly screaming and like um there's a lot of tension and it's very wound up but it doesn't feel like it goes it doesn't feel like it builds on itself as it goes along it just kind of stays at the same register throughout Mm -hmm. which at the beginning i kind of appreciated as sort of astor's way of creating a sense of claustrophobia and bringing the audience into that feeling but by the end of the three hours, it felt like I hadn't really been taken anywhere. I <laughs> felt like I'd been kind of on a treadmill. And it just, it wasn't successful for that reason. And for some other reasons as well. But I, I think that that for me is kind of the central flaw of this film that I didn't have with Astor's previous two films. Mm, yeah. And I think that being stuck in maybe second gear while the engine is revving, I think I can lay the blame for that pretty firmly on at the feet of the character of Bo, played by Joaquin Phoenix. And it's because Bo is a very passive character where everything sort of happens to him, and it doesn't feel as though there's all that much agency for this character. Bo is afraid, and that's all that Bo is. Bo is afraid, and then he reacts to something else. Bo is afraid, and then he runs away. Bo is afraid, and so he's going to try to get home to his mother, but he's also afraid of her as well. Um, And maybe that's because Phoenix is playing Bo sort of as a man who is trapped in eternal adolescence. Um, But to me, it felt like the structure of the movie was in the form of multiple vignettes where Bo's reaction is almost exactly the same every single time. There are some variations on the theme, but for the most part, it's just something completely surreal happens to Bo. He takes it more or less in stride until it becomes unbearable, and then he says, I'm going to get out of here, and then he moves on to the next vignette where the same sort of energy happens over and over again. It doesn't really feel as though Bo as a character is his own person so much as He is an idea, like he is the personification of anxiety almost. And the sequences that introduce us to him and to his world and to kind of the register of the movie itself, I thought worked really well for me because it did feel like a fairly unique expression of what it is like to be under a panic attack because it's almost impossible to tell how much of what is going on in this world is actually real and how much of it is just happening in Bo's head. So kind of like Kaufman's characters, I think there's a little bit of a sense of the unreliable narrator here. And the unreliability in Bo is afraid is that Bo is afraid and he's on medication for it. And we can't really tell how much of what he's experiencing is a result of either 
his fear or his medication. Like that's kind of the sense that I was getting from the movie up until a certain point. And then once Bo leaves that initial situation, once he finally does leave his apartment and goes out into the wider world and starts encountering other weirder and stranger people and kind of reacting to them in basically the same way every single time, that's where the movie started to lose me. And occasionally it would get me back because the vignette or the situation that he found himself in was interesting and compelling. Like there are new places that Ari Aster takes us to. And there's a really interesting sequence of imagination in which Bo is kind of reacting to a piece of art that he's experiencing in real time that I appreciated because it folded the movie's language in on itself and decided to go a little bit more surreal and a little bit more abstract. And I liked that sequence because it was it felt like it was trying to do something new, at least formally, as opposed to everything else where it's just, you know, the ongoing sustained panic attack of existence that Bo is stuck in. Yeah. The, so um, an earlier review I read of this film described it as picaresque. And I think that's a very mm. that that's 100 percent accurate. A picaresque is. Uh, a story that is often episodic that involves a, a main character who's sort of swept along from uh, situation or confrontation to another, one after another. And unlike a more traditional narrative, it doesn't have a tidy arc where it's sort of like, you know, the hero's journey, you know, is, is kind of in in ways not, not like a, a picaresque. But at the end of a story like that, say something like, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is a good example of one of those. Um, you still feel like even if the various narrative vignettes aren't closely connected to each other, there's not a whole lot of connective tissue between them. At the end of the story, the main character, either we learn something about them or they learn something about themselves or both. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the big problem with Bo is Afraid is he does kind of go from one episode to another and there's kind of that very loose feel of like anything can happen Mm -hmm. in this film. But by the end of the film, I don't feel like I learned, like I don't feel like I knew Bo any better at the end of the film than I knew him at the beginning of the film. He was an anxious person who uh, had a domineering mother. He has a complex relationship with, and it kind of just stopped there. It It began there and stopped there and I don't feel like other than dreaming up new ways to literalize that anxiety on screen, mm-hmm. I don't feel like Bo himself uh, changed at all. And I don't feel like my relationship to him as a viewer changed. So I don't necessarily think that Bo needs to have a epiphany in this film necessarily. I'd like to have an epiphany myself if one is not forthcoming for him. Mm-hmm. And I feel like no epiphanies were to be had in either case. I think my epiphany here was that I'm done with Ari Aster movies until he Ooh. stops having, um, I don't know, a lot of head trauma in his <laughs> films. We did mention this is not a horror movie, but multiple people do lose their heads in pretty gruesome ways. And that's something that I had a problem with in Midsommar and in Hereditary as well. And I was kind of hoping that that wasn't going to be the case here. But there's a definite theme of characters losing their agency and losing their heads specifically and visiting that kind of extreme trauma on a body and on a character is good when you're making a point, but it feels like he's making the same point every single time. And 
that's the thing that I think really turned me off for this movie is that Ari Aster is spinning out Bo's relationship with his mother and sort of picking at that scab from different angles, to use like a really gross metaphor, but this movie is also very gross as well. Um, And like you said, I don't feel like I'm learning anything else other than how to look at the same problem from a slightly different angle and learn the exact same thing about that problem from that other angle. It almost feels like a flattening of experience rather than an expanding on that experience. Hmm. Yeah, flattening. That's that's an interesting. It's an interesting way to think about. It. I, I I agree with you that there's a lot that happens in this movie that, uh, you know, looking at it from the vantage point of, of having seen the entire thing, mm-hmm. uh, I don't feel as if it's worth unpacking. Like there's <laughs> there's a lot of grotesquerie at play here, which you know there that's you know in the proud like that's something that has been. A proud tradition in narrative art for a long time. I mean, we we basically invented the adjective Kafkaesque to sort of describe the sort of inexplicable, grotesque uh, trials that are visited upon a person that have no end and seemingly no explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't feel like in Bo's Afraid specifically the intensity of that grotesquerie is really justified by any sort of, you mentioned catharsis earlier, and I feel like some sort of catharsis would be needed. Mm -hmm. But here it it feels like it just, it's piling one thing on another, including a late film sequence that I think is, you know, I, it's very personal line. I think it's just gross. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's, and I'm not even, I I don't even want to say what it is just because, Number one, it would spoil it. Number two, it's a family show. It's a literalization (laughs) of a lot of Bo's problems, I think, in a way that kind of takes away the power of the metaphor. It's it's gilding the lily. It's it's we already know that Bo has deep deep issues surrounding his mother, Mm -hmm. his father, and his sexuality. Mm -hmm. We don't like to to see it literalized in the way that this film literalizes that. Seems like a choice that is almost immature mm-hmm. like Aster thinks it's it's gross and funny but it it's uh power is limited by just how obvious it is mm-hmm. it's and i think that's kind of a an issue i have with the film as a whole is it doesn't it, it's it goes about exploring its themes in ways that feel obvious which isn't necessarily a bad thing but i would like for it to go somewhere if it's going to be that obvious. And I, I don't I don't feel like it just, it, it, it succeeds in doing that. Yeah. It's funny because I don't want my heroes to necessarily have to learn an explicit lesson by the time they're done with their story. I don't necessarily feel like I need to learn a lesson either, but you invoked Kafka. So I'm going to bring up my favorite Kafka quote, which is about how And he's talking about books specifically here, but he says that a book should be an axe for the frozen sea inside of us, specifically that books and stories are not always supposed to be a comfort or something that you can use to like wrap yourself in and insulate yourself from the world. And they're also not supposed to be something that you're learning a lesson from, but there should be some sort of a splitting open and coming to a better understanding either of the world or yourself through that kind of art. And here, 
I mean, again, there's a lot of splitting because there's a lot of violence. Um, I don't know that I came to that level of understanding. And I'm not sure if that's even necessarily Ari Aster's point in making this movie, because again, he keeps revisiting the same themes over and over again. And the thing that disappoints me the most about this movie is Aster is technically very good about what he's doing with the camera placement and the production design for this movie is wild and quite varied from vignette to vignette. And each of those pieces of the movie, I think, all build up to the point that he's trying to make. It's just that the point is something that has been raised a lot and I don't know that he's saying anything new with it. I, let, let's talk about the performances a little bit. Because yeah. I, I wonder if part of the the issue is the way these characters are presented to us. Mm-hmm. Um, Joaquin Phoenix, I think, is a tremendous actor. And I think he gives he gives a a good performance in this film in, in that it it's a very committed performance. Mm-hmm. Um, he's wonderful at kind of the way that he conveys how trapped Bo is in, by his circumstances and by his life. There's uh, a sequence about midway through the film where he gets taken in by a doctor and his wife who care for his, his physical wounds and treat him almost as a surrogate son. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're, the kinder they are to him, the nicer they are to him, the more he kind of, the more Phoenix has Bo wear this kind of this hunted look in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's a really wonderful bit of acting that does a lot to convey what the movie is about. The the fact that Bo has been so twisted by this relationship with his mother, where even her kindnesses seem to carry an ulterior motive. And so he can't even trust the kindness of a stranger because he thinks He's waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a great performance. I wonder if it's right for this film, though. Hmm. Um, the it. I, I wonder if this film would work better if it were just if it really leaned into the comedy more, so that it wasn't trying to make a point so much as just trying to like go more in a sketch comedy direction. You mentioned, I think you should leave. Yeah. And maybe something like that would have, would have worked better. And the fact that Phoenix is so committed in his performance makes Bo feel just so, um, like, uh, like flesh and blood in a very vulnerable way that maybe that undermines the project. I don't know that that's, you know, something can be laid at Phoenix's feet. Maybe it's just Mm -hmm. the way that Aster kind of, has lost control of this material, but either way, I'm, I'm just, the, these characters feel like simultaneously they are striving for humanity and the way that they're being presented to us. And yet they also don't feel fully human to me. They feel like puppets to be abused mm-hmm. for somebody's pleasure. Is it Aster's pleasure? The audience's pleasure? I don't know who's supposed to get pleasure out of it, mm-hmm. but I wasn't. And I'm kind of wondering what the overall aim of it was. Yeah. Phoenix's performance is one that I find interesting because I think it is good. I think it is, it makes Bo kind of a difficult character to watch because most of what I felt for him was pity and then a little bit of revulsion as well. And I think that's He's a what pathetic they're character. going for. Yeah. But 
I think it was difficult to empathize with and also watch him because he's kind of working in that same register, at least in slightly different tones of that register for the entire story. Again, there's not very much growth and there doesn't need to be, but he doesn't feel like a well-rounded character because all I'm getting from him is that he's pathetic and afraid. And that to me felt like a challenge because, and again, you know, it's, it's easy to trot out the Roger Ebert quote about movies being empathy machines. And so I think as I was watching this movie, I was feeling a little bit self-conscious of my dislike towards the character of Bo, and then feeling a little bit bad about that, trying to look for additional depths within the character, both as Phoenix was playing him and then also as the movie was portraying him. And I don't know. I He feels like a character who just is. And maybe that comes back to the title of Bo is afraid. Like it's such a static statement about a character where it's just talking about his state of being. And so I started to cast about a little bit more towards some of the other performances that we get in this movie. And all of those also feel very one note to me as well. So um, we've got Stephen McKinley Henderson playing a therapist and I don't know what he's doing here, but it almost feels as though he's an observer outside of the movie getting some sort of sick amusement out of it. Just the way that he plays this therapist with detachment definitely adds to the level of surreality as we get to meet these characters for the first time and start to get acclimated, if that can be the right word, for this world. And that worked for me at first, but the more we see this character, the more he's just kind of that level of detached that... I couldn't really tell what I was supposed to be reading into this character other than that sense. And then when we finally get around to Bo's mother in flashback and then flash forward sort of, um, she's played by Patti Lupone, and I don't know what's going on with that. I think I'm going to blame Ari Aster's direction there because it feels flat in the, in the way that the movie seems to hate her. And I don't know if that's the movie, I don't know if that's the director, I don't know if that's the character, but there's something wrong here where Bo's anxieties towards his mother kind of color all of our perceptions toward her, where she is just that one-note character. And I think that that's partly the point, but I also don't fully get what the point is. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to Kaufman as a, as a point of of comparison because for all Kaufman's surreality and his characters are also often pathetic and mm-hmm. many of his, his films and his screenplays kind of, you know, retread the same ground over and over again in terms of the, the preoccupations and neuroses that these characters have. But, and there are, there are arguments made that we're not, meant to take his films entirely seriously. They are very funny in a mordant kind of way. And I think Mm -hmm. Astor's kind of going for a similar kind of humor with these heightened characters he's got here. But I feel like with Kaufman, even when there's this heightened reality or the surreality going on, even when the characters are pathetic or, you know, outlandish, I still feel like they feel like beings that I can <laughs> that I can uh, that have value to mm. to Kaufman and to the audience. I was going to say they feel very human. Maybe that's not exactly right. They feel grounded in something, though. If they don't feel human, they feel grounded. They feel like 
beings for whom I should feel something. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with with Bo is Afraid, I don't feel anything for these characters. I want the chain of humiliations and difficulties for Bo to stop Mm -hmm. because I don't want to see anybody suffer. But I don't know that I feel anything particularly strong for him or about him. And he's really the only character who can properly be said to even be have the the movie even make an effort, I guess, to to do that for. All the other characters exist as manifestations of something that's going on with him. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not they're all in his head is beside the point. the 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 point is: is it possible for us to feel anything about about these people on screen? Mm-hmm. If Aster isn't really even interested in them as anything other than kind of like marionettes to sort of make dance to whatever music he's hearing, it feels like it's just it's missing something that is a crucial ingredient for making the surreality mean something. If if something's surreal, it's not just a bunch of random stuff. It's lost to have some sort of meaning or at least make you feel something and really all I felt for this was I wanted it to stop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And maybe that thing that's missing is potentially sharing the same sense of humor as Ari Aster because it does feel like he's directing it almost like a comedy or as a horror comedy. It's just not my sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a subjective thing, but I don't know. I, I have a hard time imagining this being a smash hit, but I don't know. We'll see. Maybe it'll be another one of those A24 sleeper hits that, you know, Sets the world on fire. I don't know. I'm I'm not holding my breath personally, though. <laughs> no, me neither. Listeners, if you uh, get a chance to see Bo is Afraid, it is out this weekend. Uh, and it's got a lot going on. So if you get a chance to see it, we may not have liked it, but we're definitely interested in hearing what you thought about it. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet over at Pod on Twitter or hit us up at Letterboxd. Our account name over there is SeaBelievePod as well. We're going to take a little bit of a break before diving into another slightly dysfunctional family with our watchlist discussion of Coraline. So stick around for that. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. And now it's time for the conversation. This is the part of the show, of course, where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And as always, Sarah, you do your part to stoke the the conversations over on Twitter with mm-hmm. your questions. This time you, you actually 
put it in the form of a poll to our listeners. Yeah, I simply wanted to know, because Bo is Afraid is coming out, Ari Aster had two previous movies that have been talked about a lot, especially on film Twitter. I just wanted to know which of Ari Aster's previous two movies do listeners prefer? So I just asked Hereditary or Midsommar. And uh, 62% of the vote went to Midsommar and 38% went to Hereditary, which honestly kind of surprised me. I was really surprised when I saw that result, actually. <laughs> I I mean, I personally prefer Hereditary, but I also was under the impression that Hereditary was pretty universally liked, whereas Midsummer was a little bit more divisive. But maybe I was wrong about that. Yeah, I have a funky relationship to both of those movies. We mentioned it a little bit earlier in our conversation. I think in terms of artistry, I prefer Hereditary, but I had a much better time watching Midsommar. Um, and we heard back from Ron Sturry as well, who gave us some of the reasoning behind why he voted the way that he did. He said, not a big fan of horror movies in general, but Hereditary was the better of the two. Byrne and Colette were fun to watch, but for me, the story made little sense. So, hmm. I mean, Col- Tony Collette is a big reason why I like Hereditary. She's amazing in that role. Like that might mm-hmm. be one of her, is that her career best? I might call that her career best performance. She's amazing in it. Yeah, yeah. She's stunning. Um, she's one of the reasons why I actually stuck it out and finally did finish that movie because the first time I saw it, I, I could not do it, could not handle it, was not ready for the spiritual tenor of the horror in that movie. Um, and I came back and stuck it out partly for that performance. And I don't know if I can say that I'm glad that I did that because I still didn't have a good time, but Colette is very good and... I don't know. I admire Ari Aster's work much more than I like it. And I definitely admire Hereditary. Yeah, I mean, I was I was I would describe myself as I like Ari Aster. Hmm. Um, Before I saw Bo was afraid. Now I'm sort of like, not so sure about this guy. (laughs) Maybe maybe we'll see what the the next film uh, has to has to show us. But I think they're both they're both really strong films. And I do remember Midsummer, especially coming away from that with the really complex stew of feelings i wasn't quite sure how to process which i think is also the mark of a worthwhile piece of art so i don't know i could i could see it going in either way i guess and it's also a really good performance for florence Pugh. i think that's that's really the the movie that put her on the map i know Mm -hmm. that she'd been people had been aware of her before then but like that was the one where everybody said oh this is an actress that we really want to watch So maybe with Bo is Afraid, since there is no central female performance anchoring that movie, maybe we found that inherent flaw potentially. Oh, okay. Is is that the is that the thing? Like Ari Aster is best when he's got a a, like a great female performance in the in the lead. I mean, two movies isn't exactly a pattern, but it could potentially be an indication of a trend. So we'll see what comes next. Uh, I guess we we will. Thanks, uh, Ron, for giving us your thoughts on Hereditary. Thanks to all you listeners for voting in the poll. The poll, I think, is closed. You won't be actually able to actually vote on it mm-hmm. in on Twitter. But if you have further thoughts about the the Aster question, of course, the, the mailbag is always open. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it and then we talk about it here. And usually there's some sort of a connection between the two movies that we're talking about. 
I'm going to hold off on letting you say what your connection was between Bo is Afraid and Coraline. I think I can hazard a guess. But Kevin, I saw so many different connections between these two movies. So do you want to hear them? Yeah, yeah. Fire them off. Okay. Horror adjacent by an auteur who's known for probably other previous movies. I don't know that we can say that Coraline is necessarily like worse than Nightmare Before Christmas, but I think Nightmare Before Christmas is the one that Henry Selleck is really known for. Um, Both movies feature detours that involve characters who are spouting lines from Shakespeare, which was a connection that I did not expect, Mm. but it showed up and I was kind of pointing at the screen when I saw that happen. Um, Movies about complicated relationships with mothers, well, with families in general, but with mothers in particular, Um, and movies in which our sense of reality is a little bit distorted, where we can't really tell what's actually going on, at least at first, until all of the cards are on the table. So I think I got all of the connections. Does that cover everything that you were thinking of? That colors, that that covers everything. I don't, there there are a couple there that hadn't explicitly occurred to me when I made the pick, but I was definitely thinking of fraught uh, mother maternal relationships Mm -hmm. and uh, realities where not everything is as it seems. That definitely holds true for both films as well. So well done there. Thank you. A little bit of the fairy tale in there, which which I appreciated. So with Coraline, if you have not seen the movie, it is a stop motion film directed and written by Henry Selleck, um, which is about the titular character Coraline, played by Dakota Fanning, who has moved into a kind of drab apartment with both of her parents, who are writers in Oregon. And as she's exploring her new home, she discovers a secret door that takes her over to another slightly better version of the universe that she lives in, in which another version of her mother and another version of her father are able to give her the attention and the love that she craves and that she's not really getting at the moment that she is moving into this new place. But as time goes by and she gets to understand other mother and other father a little bit better, she comes to realize that this other universe may not necessarily be as great as it seems in the first place. So there's a lot of, you know, dark fairy tale feelings about this movie. Um, Of course, it was directed by Henry Selleck. It's adapted from a story by Neil Gaiman, which I think kind of lends itself to the darkness a little bit in some interesting ways. So Kevin, I'm curious to know, like, I clearly did not grow up with this movie because I just saw it for the first time. But is this a movie that you wish you had grown up with? I mean, I would have really liked it I think as a kid I you know I wasn't I wasn't a big horror movie person uh until I was in my 20s really like I didn't Same, love actually I didn't love really scary or, or gory movies but I did like I liked spooky stories I guess um ones where they didn't necessarily pull their punches but where there was kind of a sense that there there's still a sense that things could be okay at the end. Hmm. And I think Coraline is a great example of that, how it is it is serious about its darkness, but it's also serious about the the good the goodness in its world and in its characters as well. And I think, you know, I think about Roald Dahl's 
books, hmm. how they they also are, they don't pull their punches and they can go go dark and even misanthropic at times. Mm-hmm. And yet there is kind of a sense in, in Dahl that he he gets how kids think, how kids don't want to be condescended to. Mm-hmm. And I think Coraline works in a similar way where Coraline herself, the main character, she isn't like a, a perfect little angel. Um, the difficulties that she has with her parents are at least partly because Coraline herself is difficult. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate a movie that doesn't pander to its child audience by making the child kind of, you know, a a rah-rah sort of figure, mm-hmm. but as somebody more complicated than that who is difficult, maybe even a little bit unlikable at times. Mm-hmm. I think that shows a lot of respect for the kids' audience. I think it shows a lot of respect for an adult audience that maybe is tired of films where the parents are just idiots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I just I appreciate also how it commits to the darkness. This is a movie that has some, frankly, pretty frightening moments. Mm-hmm. And I really like it when when a movie will will do that without erring too far on the side of grotesquerie, but also being willing to let the kids be scared. Kids, I think, are resilient in that way and they can be traumatized, but that that trauma can also lead to something that's a very memorable experience with a story or a piece of art. And I think Coraline has that. Yeah, definitely. I got shades of, I mean, there's a little bit of Chronicles of Narnia in there, I think, with the secret door. Neil Gaiman, I think, famously um, has some issues with Chronicles of Narnia, including the treatment of... Susan Pevensey's character towards the end of the series as well. So this kind of feels like a little bit of a response towards that in some ways. But I also got shades of Spirited Away, and I got shades of Pan's Labyrinth, kind of that Mm. grown-up fairy tale treatment of a child character where the movie doesn't talk down to the child, but also treats its world through that child's eyes. And... I really appreciated Coraline's relationship with her parents in this movie because, like you said, it would be really easy for this to be a movie where Coraline is always right and she is always perfect and she's got everything together and she is kind of annoying. And her parents are, I think, in a bit of a difficult situation because they're stuck working from home with a hyperactive child in the rain. Um I don't have kids myself, but I do know that that's a very difficult task to do. Um, And you can kind of get a sense for their irritation coming from a very real sense of worry because they need to be able to put food on the table and they can't do that unless they're working and they can't work unless their daughter leaves them alone. And at the same time, you still get that feeling of neglect that Coraline feels and both of those things are very true and they don't cancel each other out they just kind of pile on top of each other into a slightly more complex relationship than just one party is completely right and one party is completely wrong so thematically I love that I also love that the movie does its homework to make the alternative universe that she falls into really seem appealing from all angles it's not just that this looks like I don't know, a garden of earthly delights or something, but that it feels like a good alternative to the life that Coraline is living because 
that alternative universe understands her dissatisfaction with her lot in life and says, I'm going to try to meet you where you think that you need those needs to be met. And I'm going to fill you with a lot of empty things until you're willing to come over into this universe permanently. I don't know, like it just it feels like I get why Coraline would be interested in that alternative universe. I'm kind of enchanted by it myself. And so I can kind of see the danger in falling into that other existence. And at the same time, it is just so creepy right off the bat. Like there Mm -hmm. are some danger signals that are being sent immediately after Coraline enters that other universe, just with the buttons for eyes on all of these sort of villainous characters and the way that they treat Coraline with complete and total deference, which I think is what she thinks that she wants. And in practice, I can get why she would find that interesting, but it also makes all of these other versions of these characters that she's encountered in real life feel just a little bit more heightened and strange and unsettling in a way that like you can't quite put your finger on, but it's definitely there. And it's so carefully calibrated because it's just enough like the real life counterparts of these characters that you can tell that something's off, but you can also tell that it's a very good copy of what's going on in the real world too. One thing that surprised me on this on this rewatch was um, just how at the very beginning of the film, Coraline's mom is like, she's, you know, exasperated with Coraline, but I was surprised by the edge that the film gives the mother. Like the, the mom isn't just sort of like, oh, you know, like, Caroline, go away. Mm-hmm. She she's sarcastic. Um, she's got kind of this this um, the way that she's animated. She has kind of this very harsh facial expression on her uh, a lot of the time. And I think uh, it, it's surprising, but I think it's also crucial for why the film works. Because in order for the allure of the other mother to be plausible, you have to. It, it has to be clear that. Uh, Coraline's mom, number one, maybe could do a little bit of work on not being so uh, sarcastic to her daughter, mm-hmm. but but also that part of the reason why the other mother is uncanny is because for her to be so you know sweetness and light all the time mm-hmm. is is wrong. That's not right. That's not who th- uh, the real mother is, and that I think contributes to the feeling of something's off about it even when even before the threat kind of makes itself clear mm-hmm. uh those buttons that you mentioned i i think are, are a wonderfully understated way of communicating kind of something scary and threatening without it being overt mm-hmm. i i really liked that <clears throat> and I I'll, like I first saw this film in the theater in 3D, and this is actually oh, one of the whoa. few movies I've uh, I would say is actually enhanced by seeing it in 3D, hmm. um, because uh, when Coraline goes through that tunnel uh, in in 3D, you know it kind of unfolds, and there's that depth mm-hmm. um, that kind of brings the audience in, along too. It, it does feel a little bit like Narnia, but also that opening credit sequence where we see uh, some. Uh, hands whose owner we don't necessarily know yet mm-hmm. um, that is sewing some button eyes onto a little doll in 3D. That needle pokes out of the out of the uh, the fabric and comes right out at the audience, right into your eyes. Oh man! And it's a wonderful use of the technology that 
I would say even something like Avatar mm-hmm. doesn't even touch. And I think a lot of it is because it works to create that same sense of unsettlement that uh, you don't know why it's unsettling. You just know it's it's something almost instinctual, like an animal sense, like something's not right here. It should stop. <laughs> and And I think that when things really start to go crazy later on in the film, mm-hmm. it feels both justified and also like a, a logical evolution of the wonderful life that we've seen earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I got a sense of that depth just watching the movie on a flat screen as well. And I think part of that just comes from it being the medium of stop motion too, because there is something that is concrete happening on the screen. It's not just something that's been animated flat on pieces of paper or that has been animated, you know, in the computer. And you can lend a sense of depth to something using those two media as well. But there's really a weight to the dolls that you get when you're watching a stop motion film. So I completely believe that like that would have looked very interesting in a 3D screening as well. I was actually going to point out that tunnel stretching from one place to the other because it feels like it's actually moving as Coraline is going through it. Um, I'm also really impressed by the lighting and the set design with this movie as well, which again adds a little bit of additional creepiness or warmth to the movie, depending on which scene that you're talking about. Um, I think this is my favorite Henry Selleck. Um, I've seen Nightmare Before Christmas. I do think it's a good movie, but this one just has kind of that unique edge to it. And it doesn't feel like it's really copying anything else. It really feels like it's striding out in its own direction. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with just the shapes of these characters and the way that they move through the world. It's a very fluid form of stop motion um, that you really only get when you're dealing with like a master like Henry Selick or Phil Tippett. Like, I don't think I've seen anybody else animate stop motion on quite that same level. And I believe that world partly because of the fluidity of the motion and then also just the way that that world has been designed that makes you believe that you can get that sort of motion, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it, there's there's a tactility to stop motion that is integral to, I think in, in this story particularly, it just, you need to, you need to feel the wrongness mm-hmm. and having, and especially for a story that, does foreground dolls and constructs it i can't imagine this being computer animated it has to mm-hmm. be stop motion mm-hmm. um the when when the other father uh when we first kind of sense that something's really wrong in this in this alternate world when the other father turns around and uh stretches out his jaw kind of like oh like he he talks about pull somebody pulled a long face yes and then you see him literally pull a long face Mm -hmm. it's upsetting yes and that's because you're seeing a physical object distend in ways that it shouldn't and that it has not shown any signs of being able to do up until that point Mm -hmm. and that's that's a craft thing that is just not replicable in in other media. Mm-hmm. I, I I love it a lot, and I think that because also this film isn't doesn't feel like it's 
catering towards a very particularly American understanding of animation, which is that it's for kids. It mm-hmm. has to be a musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's it's leagues above uh, Nightmare Before Christmas for, for that reason alone. It feels like it's interested in telling a mature story for kids mm-hmm. and letting that dictate the choices that Selleck makes. You heard it here first. Kevin hates Nightmare Before Christmas. I don't hate it. <laughs> I don't think it's nearly as good as this movie, though. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. That sense of wrongness, I think, permeates the entire movie, though. And there's the wrongness that you get in the other universe. And then there's also the sense of wrongness that Coraline feels in her own. And I think it's crucial that this is the kind of fairy tale where you can't just easily fix everything. You can't easily fix it in the other universe. Although I guess my one quibble with this movie is that it kind of wraps things up in the other universe fairly easily with like a a small quest to retrieve a few objects. But at the same time, like I'm fine with it. That's a very common fairy tale kind of action that needs to be taken. Um, But Coraline's own universe, her actual home where she lives Everything also feels wrong, but it's the kind of wrong feeling that you get when you're a kid and you've just moved to a brand new place. You know, the paint is peeling off the wall in a way that doesn't look familiar and the house is the wrong shape and you're not really familiar with the like the area that you're living in anymore. And for her, a little bit of that wrongness is that feeling of neglect that she's getting from her parents. And I think crucially at the end of the movie, that isn't buttoned up particularly neatly either (laughs) Um, because there's still that slightly off relationship with her parents and part of that again I think is because Coraline is difficult herself and also because her parents are going through a difficult financial time and she's not going to be able to fully understand that certainly not at this point in her life maybe not ever Um, but it feels like there is a movement towards mending after Coraline has gone on her own personal journey and adventure. And that to me is what makes the fairy tale side of this ring true, which is that there is a monster that she has to fight and defeat. There's also the personal, like quote unquote, monster of her relationship with her parents. And she's picked up some of the tools in order to be able to handle that. But it's not something that gets wrapped up neatly in a little bow. And it's not something where once she's defeated other mother she's not going to be able to have the perfect relationship that she always wanted with her own because real life relationships take work and i just i love that the movie is mature enough to be able to recognize that and to give us a little bit of a hint of things can potentially be better but it's not going to be something that's solvable overnight either yeah things can potentially be be better but also it, it it's almost part of her relationship with her parents is that it's imperfect. It mm-hmm. is not. It is not possible to have a perfect relationship. And from her experience with the other mother, she kind of learns that she doesn't even really want mm. the perfect life. She wants her parents, who care about her in their own imperfect ways. I I think that that is kind of an insight that can easily come across as trite mm-hmm. or or saccharine. But I think because uh, Gaiman's story and Selleck's adaptation of it here leans so hard into the darkness. It feels like a hard-won truth rather than just a platitude. Mm-hmm. And I, I again, like that's down to 
the the craft of of the film that uh, if it had been computer animated or if it had kind of pulled its punches a little bit more on the more upsetting aspects, that wouldn't come through as clearly and it would be a lesser fairy tale for it, even if the plot beats were exactly the same. Well, and the lesson's never explicitly said out loud either, and I don't think it needs to be because the movie is smart enough to trust its audience to be able to pick up what it's putting down to. And, and I think maybe that's kind of another tie-in with Bo's Afraid. It felt like Bo's Afraid really was just hammering in, like, this guy has mommy issues mm-hmm. again and again. And I feel like Coraline is, uh, you know, even though it's a PG-rated movie ostensibly for kids is much more trusting of its audience's ability to sort of pick up what it's putting down as far as what it's saying about family and and uh, these relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think this is a deceptively, um, maybe not deceptively, maybe it's just an obviously smart movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I, I really enjoyed getting the chance to revisit it. This is the first time I've seen it since that theatrical viewing. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm glad I watched it. It's one that I'm hopefully able to fold into the regular rotation because as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, like, this is just a joy to watch. You know, good animation is a joy to watch. And I just really appreciate having that gift because it feels few and far between. Maybe something to add to your Halloween rotation with Over the Garden Wall? Oh, yes. I'm on board with that. <laughs> well, I'm glad you you enjoyed it. Listeners, that is our review of... Coraline, uh, Henry Selleck's film from 2009. If you've seen this film before or decide to watch along with us, let us know your thoughts. As always, you can email, tweet us, or hit us up on Letterboxd with that. Next week, we are going to reach back a little bit farther into film history, though, Sarah. You've got the pick for next week, so what is it? Yep, we're going to be watching Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7, which another all-time favorite of mine, I think... um, I'm, I'm just ready to watch a ton of really good movies. So last week we did Near Dark. This week we're doing Coraline. Next week we're going to be doing Cleo from 5 to 7. Like, it's going to be, you know, good movies only from here on out. <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah. That's well, the Sarah Welch Larson promise. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this too because I've not seen very many Varda films. So I'm looking to rectify that with, with this pick as well. She's got a great playful sensibility that doesn't undermine the seriousness i think of the stuff that she's working with so i mean i really liked that sensibility when i found it in faces places mm-hmm. Another so, good movie looking forward to catching up with this one as well listeners if you want to watch along with us it is currently streaming on hbo max and amazon prime if you're a criterion channel subscriber it's on there as well so definitely a good thing to check out Mm -hmm. and we'll be pairing it with are you there god it's me margaret it's another adaptation of another children's book so there's your connection there hey there we go we keep that rolling uh looking forward to talking about that next week but that'll do it for this week's episode listeners thanks so much for tuning in seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.